0: Welcome to the Michigan Publishing Podcast, where we engage with the people and ideas that enable us to support the broadest possible access to scholarship and drive our leadership in academic publishing. I'm Elizabeth Demers, the Editorial Director and Senior Acquiring Editor in Political Science for the University of Michigan Press, as well as the host for this episode. This is the second episode of our four-part miniseries, Dialogues in Democracy, In Conversation. Through this series, we explore some of the core tensions in American political culture, tensions that erupt every four years during the presidential election. Each episode features a pair of authors from the press's political science list who bring different perspectives to the table on U.S. issues of national concern. A critical component of any country's infrastructure is national security. It is a much more complicated issue than its arguably simple goal would suggest, as it weaves in considerations of foreign policy, national identity, military practices, and many more formidable components. On today's episode, I'm thrilled to be joined by Ben Rohrbaugh, author of More or Less Afraid of Nearly Everything, and Zachary Selden, who wrote Alignment, Alliance, and American Grand Strategy – Both titles explore pertinent topics related to democracy and American culture. And I'm so excited to speak with these authors about their work and their relevance today. Ben Rohrbaugh is a fellow in the Central America and Mexico Policy Initiative at the Robert Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas. He is also the co-founder of Lantern UAS, which develops systems to scan cargo containers using aerial drones and a partner at the consulting and training firm, Border Works Advisors, LLC. His book, More or Less Afraid of Nearly Everything, Homeland Security, Borders, and Disasters in the 21st Century, examines the political discussions surrounding homeland security. Zachary Selden is an associate professor of political science at the University of Florida and the author of Alignment, Alliance, and American Grand Strategy. In the book, Selden makes the case that foreign policy focused on maintaining American military preeminence is in the best interest of the U.S., despite calls for retrenchment and restraint. Ben and Zachary, thank you both for joining us today. Thanks very much, Elizabeth. Tell us about the inspiration behind your books and the key ideas that drove you both to this research. Yeah,
1: sure. I don't know who really wants to go first, uh, Ben. to? Zach, you go ahead, please. Sure. So for me, I mean, this started up when I was working for the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. This is going back to 2003 or 2004. And at that time, there was a lot of discussion in the academic community about sort of the overreach of the United States, dealing with the the war in Iraq and all that. And from a liberal perspective, people were saying, you know, this is forcing a lot of states to sort of draw back from cooperation with the U.S. From a realist standpoint, there were a lot of academics saying, hey, what we're seeing is the beginnings of balancing against the United States, you know, something we hadn't really seen much of before, but I was getting something very different. Cuz a big part of my job was dealing with sort of countries on the the hinterlands of NATO, you know, that weren't members, some wanted to be members. And I kept finding myself as sort of like the American representative, you know, at these dinners and receptions and whatever else getting kind of buttonholder pushed up against the wall by members of parliament from these different countries and people in the foreign ministries saying, hey, what can we do to be better partners with the United States? How do we sort of demonstrate that we can tie ourselves in closer with the U.S. and be cooperative partners with it? And I thought, well, this is kind of strange. I mean, I'm reading one thing in the academic literature. I'm seeing something very different on the ground. What's, what's going on? And I guess one of the points I was trying to make is that even at that time when you know American foreign policy was generally viewed in a pretty negative light around the world, you found that there's a lot of states out there that were threatened by the actions of Russia and China, and there was this sort of pattern of alignment with the U.S. that had a lot more to do with them and their actions than really with what the U.S. did or did not do. But in some ways, actually, you know, the United States demonstrating its capabilities and its, its will to act inspired confidence in some of those states. You also find that not all of the states want to be formal allies of the United States, and that got me thinking about sort of the the spectrum of alignment of the things that states do below the level of being formal allies that often ties them to the U.S. in a a way that's very Beneficial to us. So, you know, a lot of them don't necessarily want to be formal allies because that's going to alienate Russia and China. But at the same time, they want to demonstrate their good partners for the US. So they do lots of things in terms of providing basing opportunities or, you know, in the case of the time that I was working, providing significant contributions in Afghanistan and all this has Big, big cost savings to the United States that makes it easier for the United States to maintain its predominant position at a manageable cost. So that's kind of what I was getting to, and from there, it kind of talks about sort of a, a grand strategy for the United States that would involve what I call sort of an alignment-based hegemony, where you you recognize those contributions and you work with them and you leverage them in ways that um, going out into the future makes maintaining the American position financially manageable.
2: Great. And and I'll go ahead. I came to writing this book and, and doing this research on a, on a little bit of a different path. I was um, working on political campaigns, actually, and spent about four years from 2004 through 2008 doing political campaigns and had the... Um, unusual and fortuitous experience of finding myself on a winning campaign um, when Barack Obama became the president and had an opportunity to come into the administration. And at the time, I began working at the White House and was helping people move from campaign to, to different policy jobs. And so I was very lucky to have an opportunity to sort of choose where I wanted to go. Um, and I made a choice that was a little bit unusual and certainly unpopular with my parents and, and girlfriend at the time and others, but it was to go to the Department of Homeland Security. And my sense was that. It was a place where the policy world was really open, where there, things weren't decided and were up in the air, and there were there were big decisions that still needed to be made, and where the structures wouldn't sort of slot in a, a young political appointee in, in the way that if I'd gone to the Department of State or Defense or something, you know, they would have known exactly where to put me, and, and that would have been it. And I was able to come in and, and do a lot of really interesting, substantive work there, and I ended up being a, an eight-year political appointee. I worked at Customs and Border Protection at the Department of Homeland Security, um, and at the White House at the National Security Council doing Homeland Security border management and a lot of engagement with the government of Canada and the government of Mexico in particular. But what I saw and what was surprising to me was sort of how undefined so much of what we were working on was and how there really was not a a policy infrastructure in place. It was something that was very much being built. And I I saw that I had all these colleagues from the campaign and other places who'd come into government. And when they went and worked on foreign policy, or then they went and worked at the defense department, or when they went and worked at the intelligence community, there was this policy infrastructure built that they could just step into. You know, there there was a lot of books and lots of studies and think tanks and all sorts of support mechanisms that had really helped think through all of these pressing issues and gave them a foundation from which to make decisions. And with Homeland Security, there are a couple books by former secretaries, a few things by former officials, and you know certainly a lot of coverage of when the department was formed. But beyond that, it, it wasn't really in place. And there's this need to think seriously about these sort of new, what we call Homeland Security threats and what they mean. And so the more I did that, the more I saw that what's happening with the Department of Homeland Security is not a common narrative that people had about how the department was formed, which was that you know the department was a, a response to 9/11, and there was a sort of overreach, and then everything was getting back to normal. and And instead, what I saw is that there were more and more and more challenges and threats that were straining the existing structures in government. Whether it was I, I worked on the Ebola response, I worked on the response to unaccompanied children from Central America arriving in 2014, 2015, and all of these sort of new phenomena were were occurring that the the government wasn't organized to deal with. And so structures were being put in place, and most of them evolved to putting someone senior in to, to deal with things. And it really got me thinking about why the existing foreign policy and national security structures weren't a good fit for the threats that we were dealing with. And so this book sort of came out of that experience where I, I wanted to do sort of a small part to help establish this, this literature, this policy literature about Homeland Security, but also to explore why the existing systems and infrastructure that were in place were not a good fit for the challenges, the threats that that we're facing now and what that means and what that's going to mean in the future.
0: That's great. Thank you. And that's a great lead into my next question. I noticed that both of these books analyze U.S. security issues. They do it from different directions um, from foreign policy and from domestic homeland security issues. I'm fascinated that both books essentially cover the same chronological space, if you will, which is roughly the two decades following 9-11. But the other thing that struck me is that both of these books are preoccupied with the idea of strategy as a core component of security. And Zach, let me ask you, when we think about U.S. foreign policy, we do tend to think about grand strategy. Can you talk about how U.S. grand strategy has changed since 9-11? And what does this mean for U.S. voters? as we think about the upcoming election.
1: Yeah, I mean, grand strategy is one of those concepts where a lot of people say well it doesn't exist or the United States is incapable of doing it because of sort of the nature of its democratic structure, but the idea is to have some kind of long-term outlook, you know, that allows you to try to get your permanent national goals further down the road to some degree in, in your national interests. And so when you think about grand strategy, you know, it's not about what you're doing right now or even next year, but what's sort of the long-term plan for trying to maintain an American position in the global environment and expand or maintain its interest? So grant strategies is kind of big concept out there to sort of think about how do you look into the future and and like I said align your resources and your goals in such a way that they're realistic and so different administrations may have different interpretations of what different strategies are appropriate there are a lot of different possible options out there ranging from what some people call neo-isolationism to what some people call primacy which is the idea of sort of maintaining American hegemony for over the long term by preventing the rise Of competing powers. And some people in this period of time were also suggesting sort of a retrenchment uh, strategy by the United States, kind of pulling back, avoiding commitments and alliance responsibilities around the world, allowing other states really to take on more of the burden of this independently on the assumption that, you know, the United States exists in a relatively safe environment. My point is that that brings up a number of potential risks, and we have to be very careful about that. And that if we're concerned about the cost, which is really a big driving factor when you talk about resources, then we have to really appreciate what these states that align with the United States offer to us and how they mitigate the costs and how we can do things that give them confidence and sort of create a virtuous cycle. But if we try to pull back too much, you might have a vicious cycle where if you pull back, they stop cooperating. It gets more expensive for the United States. We have no choice but to sort of seed the field. And that's going to be filled by other major powers like Russia and China. That's not going to be good for the US. So that's kind of where I was trying to go with this, to sort of suggest an, an alternate grand strategy that really kind of recognizes what the United States gets from its cooperation that it receives from aligned and allied states and do what it can to maintain that as a way of mitigating the costs of the American position in the world.
0: It was interesting to me as I was rereading your book about countries like Ukraine and Poland that sent troops to help the U.S. in, I think it was Afghanistan or Iraq. And How much they had at stake in doing that in terms of their relationships with Russia, in terms of trying to solidify this relationship with the United States that was less formal, but still a a huge contribution on their part.
1: Yeah, I mean Ukraine's, you know, a good example of the less formal side of things, right? Because they're they're not a member of the NATO alliance, whereas, you know, Poland became in that period. And yeah, Ukraine was sending very, very clear messages to the United States and still is to a large degree, and, and American and Ukrainian cooperation has only deepened uh over time. I'd say arguably, particularly under, under the Trump administration, where we've stepped up provision of lethal uh aid to Ukraine, um, particularly the provision of, of anti tank weapons, which is a very important issue for, for Ukraine, and even you know, going as far as to build uh, essentially a small naval base, a maritime support station in the Black Sea uh, coast of Ukraine, very close to the contested Crimea area that, that Russia occupies, which sends a very clear message to Russia about Ukrainian-American um, cooperation and our willingness to sort of support Ukraine's core interests in the region, which is precisely what Ukraine wants, right? That's why they've been such a good partner to the U.S.,
0: And does that affect the U.S. relationship with Russia?
1: Uh, Yes. I mean, it sends a very distinct message to Russia about our desire to support the the independent states of the region and prevent uh, more Russian expansion of influence. The United States has been doing that in the Baltic states as well, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and that sort of started in the Obama administration as sort of a what they call a, a reassurance initiative to try and bolster those countries and uh, then involve moving certain amounts of U.S. troops to that region. But that's increased over time in this, this current administration in terms of the number of exercises, the kinds of exercises that are very clearly directed against um, the sorts of operations that Russia tends to try, and also a massive exercise in moving heavy military equipment quickly from the continental United States to that region just to show we could do it. It was the largest exercise of its kind since the Cold War. And, you know, those messages are not lost on Russia. So, yeah, I think those are all important indicators.
0: And Ben, you write that in your book that homeland security initiatives um, since 9-11 have been primarily reactive, and I think you alluded to this a few minutes ago as well. And you advocate the need for a more strategic approach to deal with the non-nation state actors who threaten or challenge U.S. security. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Sure. So I I think that, you know, that however incoherently it may be articulated by by some leaders, the United States certainly has a grand strategy and it's evident in where we put the money and where we, where we put bodies in our organizations. You know, you, you can you can certainly see um, where in terms of where resources go, what we're prioritizing against other things. And the the priorities of the United States government now are very much those that were established in the decades after the second world war the the structure of a of, of a unified department of defense um, of this large intelligence community of of our foreign policy apparatus and it was was really was, was put in place then and even now is oriented towards these sort of traditional military and foreign policy confrontations and international um, intelligence activities and what we're seeing now is that these what I call homeland security threats or non-state threats are increasing and becoming much, much more dangerous in ways that, just didn't exist when the, the structure was put in place. And obviously coronavirus is a, is a dramatic example of that, but we've we've seen this with the rise of, of terrorist threats with the increase in what organized crime is able to do. We've, we've seen this with cybersecurity and we're, we're seeing it in the scale of natural disasters that we're facing. And so what I talk about in the book and what I advocate is that rather than just wait until a disaster occurs and then try to reorganize the government in response to that, we should be actually thinking about what these threats are, and what are the vulnerabilities in the American system? I mean, I think something like infectious disease, you know, I I wrote extensively in the book about the the response to Ebola in in 2014, and how disorganized it was, and how the United States doesn't have an official in charge of pandemic response. And, And in order to do that, and in order to make it organized, the Obama administration had to put in an Ebola czar in the White House and really take all these functions, centralize them in the White House to make sure that that all of these things were being done. And then it was very effective once it did that. But that requires the president's attention. And that isn't a good model for everything we need to do, you know, to put in a new official at the White House to, to deal with all of these things. And so I think what, what's going to happen is either we're going to look seriously at these threats and reorganize to deal with them, to deal with the scale of the vulnerabilities that exist, or we'll wait disasters will occur. And then we'll find ourselves reorienting both our our structure and our strategy on the fly. And that's not a good way to operate. And that's the sort of thinking that results in things like the Iraq war and other sort of strategic disasters, really.
0: This next question is really for both of you, but Ben, maybe you could go first on this. How important is it to American voters um, some of these security issues? Like we talk in the news about the wall, about the war on terror, about threats from Russia, threats from China. Do voters take these things into consideration when they're thinking about casting their ballots?
2: I think that they mostly take it into consideration in, in a negative way. I think when foreign policy and or when these kind of threats are used in campaigns, it's mostly in terms of fear. something negative and i'm I'm thinking particularly about it you know i worked for i worked in the 2004 presidential election and bush campaign at that time was literally running ads with wolves chasing the viewer talking about how dangerous the world was after 9 11. i mean the the implication was clear it was if you vote for john kerry terrorists are going to kill your family and there's certainly that kind of campaigning it certainly was the case in 2016 with the wall and, and everything that was you know in really inflammatory language about immigrants that the trump administration was was using but i think otherwise foreign policy considerations, you know, have not been sort of traditionally top of the mind for voters. Um, but what we're seeing now is, as these vulnerabilities manifest themselves in ways that actually affect people directly, these are becoming much, much bigger issues and becoming things that are are much more direct concerns. I think coronavirus is really the start of, of us seeing that kind of thing.
0: And Zach, do you think that the coronavirus pandemic will change American foreign policy or have an impact on it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, sort of getting back to your your earlier question, yeah, you know, there's a lot of, you know, academic literature and political science that sort of deals with that question about the impact of foreign policy on, on elections and uh, in public opinion. And by and large, most of that literature would say that foreign policy issues don't generally factor that heavily into voters' decisions unless there is a major conflict going on, and particularly one that's going poorly. That's when you usually tend to see it but otherwise not so much. In terms of coronavirus, yeah, I think there will be some big implications. I think one of them has been to accelerate a move towards you know, what some people are calling decoupling from China and an attempt to sort of isolate China, but certainly put China in a somewhat different category of states in the international environment and try to bolster, uh, I would argue, an American-led effort to contain Chinese influence in the region and one that's found a lot of buy-in from states in that region. So you will notice that the US-Japanese relationship has increased rather dramatically over the last couple of years, that with Australia as well, uh, India, and a number of smaller states. And it's all sort of aimed at that. And I think the coronavirus outbreak um, is only going to accelerate that. And that's going to be, I think, a major driving factor in American foreign policy uh, into into the next coming years.
0: So how do you think U.S. citizens would benefit from being more informed about what goes on beyond our borders and America's role in it? And how do these international issues affect U.S. security within its borders? Um, Ben, do you want to take that?
2: Sure. I think the change we're seeing is that it's becoming increasingly impossible to ignore these international issues. You know, for a lot of the 20th century, well, maybe ill-advised, you know, a voter could go about their day-to-day lives without being directly affected by a lot of the sort of key issues in foreign policy it might be something that they they understood mattered and certainly they cared whether the United States was at war with the Soviet Union or not but in terms of the way it affected them day to day you know if you lived in like I do in Austin Texas your bank was local you didn't have to worry about international criminals stealing your money or your identity you didn't have to Largely worry about infectious disease arriving immediately through globalized travel networks. There, There are all of these things that are happening now. That, that weren't in place then. And so I think what, what's, we're, what we're seeing is that, especially for the kinds of non-state threats that, that the government is not well organized to respond to, they're manifesting themselves in um, the lives of civilians in ways that they, they did not do before. So I, I think they're, they're sort of forcing people to pay attention to them and, um, in, in ways that, that just hadn't been the case in the past.
1: I mean, I I tend to agree with Ben. I mean, I think, you know, the international has a a nasty way of impacting onto the domestic, especially in a a globalized world and a globalized economy. I mean, there's – you know, it becomes very, very difficult um, in – an American economic environment where so much depends on international trade and an exchange that you can you you simply can't sort of ignore what affects the the flows around the world um, economically and obviously there's a lot of political and security issues that affect that as well. So I think you know in terms of how do you sort of try to educate citizens or bring these issues to people's attention in a way they can absorb you know that's that's a constant um, issue I guess for people like me who who teach these issues at the university level, right? How do you engage with, with students um, who are just sort of, you know, part of that population and going to go off hopefully into responsible careers and, and, and be responsible adults later on? How are they going to internalize all this? And I think, you know, it really requires sort of connecting these issues to things that interest individuals on a more day-to-day basis and you know it's i think very simple to connect their ideas of pros- you know general prosperity security to some of these international issues you know they're, they're, things are connected right you can't just sort of neatly carve these things into into distinct and separate boxes
0: And Zach, I think that the um, pandemic has really exposed some of those relationships. Can you talk a little bit about how the pandemic might affect U.S. relationships with its allies or its unofficial allies in Asia or Europe?
1: Like I said, I mean, I think one big effect has been from a number of states to sort of look at how China has dealt with this, um, uh, certainly initially, the problems resulting from that, and then sort of spin that onto a whole range of other issues that that are causing a lot of tensions in the Indo-Pacific region as as china appears to have used the chaos generated from this to try to expand its reach and you know uh, the conflict that's generated or stirred up with india or you know the power grab in hong kong so people look at all this i think in in the asian region and that causes more alarm about chinese actions which is i think driven closer cooperation between the united states and and many of those um asian partners with which it has traditionally worked such as Japan but also with some that are not traditional you know allies of the United States like Vietnam as well so you know there's th- there is an increased pattern i think of i would argue alignment with the United States that in part is is bolstered by by what has come out of all of this
0: Thank you. And Ben, you've talked about the pandemic in this podcast, um, as well as in your book. One of the other uh, hardcore parts of your book is really about migration and the southern U.S. border. And I'm interested to know if the pandemic has had any effect on U.S. migration and border security issues and if you think it will in the future.
2: Sure, it's, it has had a dramatic effect on the borders. They've, they've been closed to all except what they call essential travel, which is, is largely just the movement of, of goods back and forth. And it's not, and, and then the Trump administration has separately used that as an excuse to effectively cut off any kind of migration. Um, Right now, in terms of the longer term effects, though, I I think it'll have a profound change. And what we've seen is that the the trend and the trend I talk about in my book with migration is that it's shifted from something where uh, a process where countries just react when people arrive and then figure out, you know, what what they're going to do. Where are these people from? Do we allow them to stay? Do they meet humanitarian requirements? What, you know, or do we do we return them? to something where people have to, or or officials have to look at sort of the whole chain of movement and they have to look at at these phenomena in ways that are, are much more from, you know, where, where migrants leave, where they're going, what, um, what are the travel networks that are moving them and, um, where, where the demand is going to continue. And so I think as, Authorities adjust to this. There's going to be a big push for health related travel screening for ways to figure out where people have been, if they've been, um, if they're in places that are likely where it's likely they could have been infected, um, where they previously been been screened if people have had previous tests and how that information can be shared um, and then also um, screening for indicators that people could you know things like temperature checks and other things to for indicators that people could be carrying diseases and so there's going to be this big push for all sorts of additional levels of screening but then of course that'll come up against both privacy concerns and just the the general um, challenge which is is having you know a coordination among independent nation states, on migration, when it's an issue like a like a pandemic disease that affects all of them, where they they all have an interest in making sure it doesn't spread internationally, um, but where there isn't any kind of authority um, in between them other than voluntary cooperation that can um, cause them to to work together. And and that's something where, you know, like Zach mentioned the relationship to the United States and China, where it's it's particularly difficult, where there, there isn't a lot of trust where there isn't a lot of willingness to share information about potentially infected people and travelers and where, you know, the kind of, of cooperation that would really be necessary to ensure that modern globalized travel flows don't involve movement of uh, pandemic diseases. It's just, it's just not in place.
0: You talk in your book a little bit about the relaxation of travel visas over the past 20, 30 years. And as Americans, I know we have a lot of freedom to travel around the world. Do you think this will change in the next decade?
2: Well, it certainly changed in the near term where we're, we're not able to travel anywhere. But yeah, I think health screening has not traditionally been a, a huge part of visa issuance. And I think that now it will be. People will be very. I mean, it is. it has been for, for sort of certain select populations from certain places where there are known outbreaks. But I think it's going to be you know the expectation should be going to be much more important, where people will be much more interested, and a lot of countries will frankly be much more invasive. You know, if you're going to arrive in a country, I mean, right now there are a lot of countries that require quarantines. and yeah, you know, they'll certainly could require testing and other things um, that uh, you know are not traditionally things that the travelers have been subjected to. But but I think that right now, and the key thing is that there is there's really no situation in which. You know, your average citizen of the developed, you know, of the developed world has fewer rights than when they're crossing an international boundary. You know, people can search your laptop, search your phone. There's all sorts of things that they can do that they would not normally be able to do unless they had, you know, you were suspected credibly of, of having committed a crime. And and it, yeah, I think that there's there's likely to be a, a big increase in, in travel screening, whether through technological responses or just other sort of, like I said, more invasive kind of testing or questioning.
0: Thank you. So Zach, if you had to pick one takeaway from your book that American citizens should keep in mind as they vote in the 2020 presidential election, what would it be?
1: Uh well that's a good question. I think you have to sort of look at the international environment and make a decision of what do you think that portends for the the near future for the next 4 to 8 years and what sort of candidate best fits your ideas of how you want that situation to be managed. So if you view it, you know, as I think a lot of people in the current environment do as one where the emphasis should be on managing great power competition, that is, you know, US relations with China and Russia and both trying to establish this very complex sort of delicate balance between engagement and deterrence, between giving confidence to allies and allied states around those states, um, while at the same time not threatening regional powers like Russia and China into positions where they feel compelled to to, to act violently. That's a very delicate dance, right? Right. And so I guess you have to look at, you know, the track records of, of the individuals here, what they're saying about that and how they would handle it. Because that's, you know, that's probably going to dominate the landscape of international relations over the next four to eight years. And, you know, that can easily spill into either, that can either be a managed situation that avoids spilling over into conflict or one that spins out of control. So who do you think is going to manage that best? given what they say and what they do. That's where I would come out.
0: Great. Thank you. And Ben, if you had to pick one takeaway from your book that American citizens should keep in mind as they vote in the 2020 presidential election, what would it be?
2: Sure, and um, you know I, I was an eight-year appointee of the Obama administration, so my 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 opinions about my opinions about the current administration are going to be pretty pretty obvious. But in just in in terms of the book, the takeaway from the book I'd want to leave with listeners is that the Trump administration has pursued a nationalist response to basically everything it's been confronted with internationally and with security issues, and they've they've focused on the kind of 20th century nation state response to basically everything that you know would have been more predictable and normal in the 20th century, and, and this is in terms of migration. It's been well, we're going to close the borders. This is in terms of this is in terms of disease, where again it focused on things like travel bans. This is in terms of cybersecurity, where they've they've you know done some trying to indict and prosecute cyber criminals. But it is it's all the sorts of things that the tools that we used for for 20th century challenges. And so what I what I would what I would emphasize is that against 21st century non-state threats the sort of things i describe in my book that kind of strategy won't be successful and we'll continue to see the kind of results that we're seeing now with natural disasters in in california and in, in the gulf and with coronavirus obviously we'll, we'll see migration crises and situations where either processing systems are overwhelmed or the administration is doing punitive, immoral things to migrants. We'll see ongoing vulnerabilities to our cyber infrastructure that are frankly horrifying. And we'll also, and and this might not be as obvious, but we'll see real deficiencies in our counterterrorism posture. I think a lot of people, because the Trump administration's language is so aggressive and because they've done things like like killing Kazem Soleimani, that they're that they're you know tough on on terror and that they're they're somehow you know being at least aggressive and trying to to protect the United States the way that the the Bush administration was perceived to be and that that really isn't the case I think that the the counterterrorism response has been one that that's particularly alarming for those of us who who follow it closely you know you wouldn't put a person like like John Ratcliffe or Rich Grinnell in charge of the director of national intelligence or in charge of the in the position of director of national intelligence if if you really really cared about about their competence in preventing terror attacks. And, and you know, there's a, an official who just left the government, guy named Russ Travers, who I, I worked for at the White House, who's a senior director there, um, and, and separately was the director of the National Counterterrorism Center. And he just wrote an article for Foreign Affairs, where he says that there's less senior counterterrorism experience at the White House now than there's been at any point since 9-11. So I think you need to, whatever other priorities you have, balance that against the sort of the clear established precedent that this administration and their approach is going to be largely ineffective at addressing Homeland Security non-state threats as it has demonstrated itself to be. So you should, you should expect a continuation of that.
0: Great. Thank you so much. And thank you, Ben and Zachary, for your time today and your compelling discussion.
1: Sure. Thank you. Thanks. It's been a pleasure
0: more or less afraid of nearly everything and alignment alliance and american grand strategy can be purchased at press.umich.edu and are also available through the University of Michigan Press ebook collection for other titles in the Dialogues and Democracy collection and to learn more about Michigan publishing please visit publishing.umich.edu Please tune in for our next episode in the Dialogues in Democracy in Conversation miniseries for a conversation about racial justice. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Michigan Publishing Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss a show. You can also follow the University of Michigan Press on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn for posts about episodes and other relevant content about our work. This podcast was written by Jillian Graham and produced by Teresa Schmidt with the support of Michigan Publishing at the University of Michigan.